Welcome to the 360T Podcast, a series that features top industry professionals offering unique insights regarding how the FX market is developing around us. Hello, and welcome to the 360T Podcast with myself, Galen Stops. And I am delighted to be joined today by not one, but two guests. And uh, based on their backgrounds and the work that we've been discussing today, I suspect I'm going to get a bit of a brain workout today, which is also why I'm excited for this podcast. Uh, so I'm joined by Claire Diso, Head of Economics and Strategy at Millennium Global, and Elisa Baku, Economist at Millennium Global. Thank you both so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So the reason I was so uh, keen to get you both on the podcast was because uh, I read a couple of reports that you published. Now, they were published just over one year, but approximately 10 lifetimes apart, it feels like. Both of the reports look at the pricing of EM currencies relative to global factors. Can you just explain to me what exactly this means and and why it's important for investors to consider this? Yes, uh, of course. Alisa, please. I think we will all agree that when it comes to predicting exchange rate movement, that this is not an easy thing to do. This because we have a large set of possible explanatory variables. On one hand, for example, you have domestic variables like the balance of payment position or the monetary policy stance. And on the other hand, you have also the importance of the global environment, especially for emerging market currencies, uh, such as, for example, the commodity prices. Usually, a positive shock on the commodity prices is associated to lead to an appreciation of the so-called commodities currencies, like Russian ruble, for instance. On the other hand, we have also other possible uh, variables that capture the global environment, which is, for example, the 10 years U.S. Treasury yields, which, for example, an increase in the 10 years uh, U.S. Treasury yields that we observed uh, just a few weeks ago had a strong impact on the emerging market currencies. So the final impact on the emerging market currencies is not that straightforward. That's why we thought that it would be very important for investors to have, uh, let's say, a quantitative measure that captures the impact on emerging currencies, that capture, in fact, the global environment and the impact of this global environment on emerging market currencies. And the way how we do that is by implementing a methodology that is called factor model analysis. The reason why we cannot proceed by implementing just a simple, for example, OLS regression is because we have a huge amount of possible variables. And then we will have a lot of issues from an econometrics point of view, such as, for example, these variables will be highly correlated with one another. And we have also restrictions on the amount of the variables that we can introduce into a regression. But by implementing a factor model analysis, we can reduce the amount of the variables that we use by extracting only a few factors that, in fact, are able to capture all the variability in the data. For example, in our case, in our paper, we were able to extract only two factors that captured, in fact, 90% of the variability in the data in the first stage of our regression. Then in the second stage, we introduced these factors as possible exponentiary variables. Why we can do so is because these factors are totally uncorrelated with one another, which means that they are totally exogenous, and we are sure that in the end, the results that we will have will be not biased. And something important that I should not forget to mention is that, of course, as in every econometrics research, it is very uh, important the way how we treat the data. 
So we paid a particular importance to the data cleaning process in order to make them fitable for a vector model analysis. And the last important benefit that an investor can get from implementing such a method, in fact, is that an investor will not only know how the emerging market currencies as a whole are versus the global factors, but also an investor can see whether there is any differentiation among these emerging market currencies, which in fact brings me to the last point that is by implementing such a method, we save time to the investors when it comes to the decision-making process. So Claire, I want to ask you about putting this method into practice. In the 2020 report, you found that EM currencies looked fairly priced relative to global factors. And you suggested that these economies might have become more resilient to shocks, particularly in contrast to when you think about things like the infamous taper tantrum we had back in 2013. By contrast, in the report you published on March 8th of this year, you found that EM currencies versus the US dollar were cheap compared to global factors. Now, as we sit here, I should probably point out, recording this podcast on April 19th, what conclusions can you draw from this change? Yes, it's interesting because your question actually draws on two different set of factors. The first one is the global environment and how much of the global environment are EM currencies pricing. And the second is more fundamental and structural factors that underpin currencies. And you're right, in February 2020, you didn't have much buffer from the pricing of global factors because EM currencies, as we found with ELISA, were actually very fair to global factors. So you didn't have a buffer if the global environment were to deteriorate, which is what happened. Right now, I think it's important to look also at global factors because they are quite mixed. As you know, huge um, fiscal expansion in the US, very boomy growth. That's a positive for emerging markets. But at the same time, you've got uh, US Treasury yields likely to rise further this year. So quite a mixed set of factors. And despite that, we find that the emerging market currencies are still cheap compared to global factors. So for investors, that formalizes the idea that in this global reflationary trade that we've had in all assets, in credit, in equities, emerging market currencies are lagging. So we've had a weaker dollar that should have helped. We've had higher equities in the US that should have helped. Of course, it's only one factor each time. So that's why the value of our analysis is that we capture everything in a good statistical way. And we can say that at the end of March, for instance, you had a, quite a significant discount of emerging market currencies to global factors. So it means there's value. It doesn't mean it's a call to buy all emerging market currencies. And we've looked as well at the second set of factors, more domestic factors. And when you look at that, you can have stronger conviction if a currency is not only cheap compared to the global environment, but also has solid fundamentals. And I think that's also the lesson from the crisis, as you implied. It's the fact that, yes, we've had another overshoot. So normally, emerging market currencies overshoot in a crisis. That's always been the case. This time was no different. The source of the crisis was very different, but you had a massive overshoot. And Perhaps because emerging markets uh, can't react the same way as developed markets, it takes a lot longer to recover. And one element I'd like to highlight is just the fact that in developed markets, we've had large monetary stimulus that was helping to create fiscal space. So that's why we've had the deepest recession since the Second World War, but we've also had a big rise in equities, for instance. In emerging markets, we've had central banks trying to have counter-cyclical policy, but they've had uh, less fiscal space. So think about India, they were not able to spend much in order to fight the epidemic. 
And they've tried also to ease monetary policy, even uh, venturing into some form of quantitative easing, but it's not been as credible as uh, in developed markets because of past history of central bank uh, not being independent. So I think that structural factor, which, as you highlighted, in 2020, we thought that compared to the last 10 years, emerging markets had more room for maneuver to deal with a crisis. I think that was broadly correct. And I don't think many people expected uh, emerging market central banks to cut rates so fast and to be able to do so. Normally, when currencies are hit, they have to actually hike interest rates. They were even able to buy government bonds, and that really helped at a time when you had capital outflows. So definitely more room for maneuver, but not enough yet to have a broad-based recovery that we have enjoyed in developed markets in terms of assets. And that's particularly true for emerging market currencies. So we find it interesting to see that uh, we need to differentiate across currencies, but there's still value right now in emerging market currencies. And that's a great point I want to pick up on when you talk about you need to differentiate. And you know this mm-hmm. is a kind of a, a blanket argument for going out and acquiring EM currencies. So in the report, you very clearly differentiate between the potential of various EM currencies to appreciate versus the US dollar. Now, there's been much talk in the press and just more broadly about this kind of K-shaped economic recovery. Do you see that playing out within EM economies and and consequently having an impact on their currencies? Yes, um, the crisis brings within each economy more differentiation across sectors, as we see in the K-shaped recovery. It also brought a lot more inequality in a number of developed markets, uh, given the differentiated impact on the labor market. When we translate that concept to emerging market currencies, we actually look at the sectors and which sectors matter most for each country. So initially, as mentioned earlier, in fact, uh, the Asian economies and China in particular were the quickest to recover because they have a large exposure to the manufacturing sector and to things we were actually importing. So I think the difference between countries that have a large manufacturing sector and the ones that rely more on tourism, for instance, is very big. And that explains a lot of the differentiation initially on the currency side. So taking the example of Asia, within Asia, we liked a lot earlier on the Chinese currency, the Korean won, for specific reasons linked to the external trade cycle. But we saw the Singapore dollar uh, lagging and we think it will eventually catch up very soon simply because of the link to tourism and international travel which is only likely to reopen later this year. So that's a very staged uh, recovery, so with very different lags uh, based on that. The other differentiation point we see now that we are in a recovery phase is the ability of emerging market central banks to deal with uh, higher inflation. Inflation has not fully disappeared uh, when it actually rose due to supply chain constraints, as we mentioned earlier. So we've had supply side issues in emerging markets during the crisis that kept, in some cases, inflation elevated. And now we have also some demand recovery impulse. So that's also the ability of central banks to fight that inflation, especially when U.S. bond yields rise. That's a key differentiating factor. So we see that as a big factor compared to the balance of payment dynamics to understand which country should fare better. And that's pointing to countries such as Mexico, where you have a high real rates and also a very solid balance of payment that will uh, probably do better over the medium term. So apart from the global factors, the fundamental picture, which is the ability to maintain a tight enough monetary stance in the face of a higher US yields is probably an important factor. 
Otherwise, the classic differentiating factors uh, remain in place. And I think it's a mix of the gross numbers as well as the sovereign risk I mentioned earlier. So when you look at Brazil, it is definitely cheap in terms of currency versus commodity prices. Yet we all know the political situation is really negative. It's bringing higher fiscal risks uh, for a country that is already very indebted. So when we take a discretionary view on that, uh, we know we don't have yet the trigger to go back to that currency. We need the epidemic to be contained, fiscal risk to be reduced in order for the currency to benefit from the global factors. So that's the way we try to combine those um, differentiated factors in order to come up with a view on the currency side. And so I guess I wanted to ask more broadly then, do you think that the EM currency valuations will be determined in 2021 or certainly the next year or so by kind of economic fundamentals, by what the Fed decides to do with interest rates, etc.? Or will we see pricing driven by short-term news related to the pandemic, related to vaccinations? Will one ultimately kind of outweigh the other when, when we see currency moves? Yes. So I think you're right. We have two sets of factors for emerging market currencies this year. The first one is the epidemic and vaccination progress overall in emerging market is slower than in developed markets. But it's actually very slow in countries that don't need vaccination at the moment because they contain the virus. That might include China, for instance. And in Central Europe, where the epidemic is raging, uh, you have very fast uh, vaccination progress similar to the EU area. So that vaccination news for me is a slight negative overall for emerging market currencies. Because what's happening is that gross expectations are rising faster in developed markets, especially the US, but more broadly in developed markets versus emerging markets. So you can see that in the way forecasters revise their forecast, they revise more strongly the outlook for the UK, for instance, or the US because of the reopening of those economies compared to the outlook for emerging markets. So that the way the virus influences emerging market currencies is probably through that gross differential. And we know the differentiation between emerging market currency growth and also the developed market growth. That's a key driver of capital flows to EM and of their currencies. So in that light, the Fed is important, not so much because we fear that they will hike sooner than the market prices. Market is already optimistically priced. It's more through the impact on the long end of the curve and the fact that the market might panic when we see base effect driving much higher inflation in the US. So in that light, I think it's important to look at real yields in EM versus uh, the US. And you still have a buffer in a number of countries, but not all. So that's why we pay a lot of attention to the pace of interest rate hikes. Brazil had the lowest real yield in emerging markets we cover. It's now hiking at a fast pace. We expect another 75 basis point at least next month. So all of that will contribute to reduce the gap. And more broadly, I think with only the exception of Turkey, the fact that bounds of payments have improved means that EM currencies are not as vulnerable as in 2013. You mentioned the taper tantrum. At that time, emerging markets were overheating. Counter-con deficits were unsustainable. Currently, we still have emerging markets growing below potential. So that's reflected in counter-account bounces, which are either in surplus or have small deficit, again, with the exception of Turkey, and real yields compared to the US are much higher still than in uh, 2013. So that's why we see a differentiated impact of higher yields in the US, and countries that benefit from the US growth should actually fare better. So take Mexico, take Asia, they benefit from higher US demand. And... Um, to the extent that they have cautious central banks, uh, they should also do better. 
So that's why we see a lot of differentiation in emerging markets. Interesting. And going back to your report for one minute, you actually did a case study looking specifically at the Mexico peso when you talk about kind of the impact of global factors on currency pricing. Why did you choose the Mexican peso in particular? I mean, I assume it wasn't pulled out of a hat at random to use that currency for the case study. Yes, in fact, you're right. It was not a random decision to provide the case study of the Mexican peso. In fact, we believe that the Mexican peso is a good case study when it comes to the impact of the global factors due to two main reasons. The first one is that it is a very high uh, cyclical emerging market currency that offers investors liquid markets in normal times. For example, by the Bank of International Settlements survey of 2019, Mexican peso was ranked as one of the most traded emerging currencies after the Chinese currency and the South Korean won related to the option trading. And the second reason why we decided to provide the example of the Mexican peso is because Mexican peso, based on many valuation models, seems to be undervalued. And so for us, providing this case study was somehow verifying our own hypothesis that maybe the global factors had an impact on why there were periods of time when the Mexican peso was a good currency to buy and when there were times when we shouldn't do so. And in fact, this were overall why we did so. But of course, in the future, we will try to expand and provide further case studies in other emerging market currencies. And could one of you, just for people who perhaps haven't read the report, just flesh out a little bit the findings of this case study section? Uh, yes. Well, I could uh, group the findings into parts. In the first one, when we extracted the factors, we find out the first two factors had a high exponential power, around 98% of the total variability of the data was captured by these two factors. And in fact, in the first axis, or in the first factors, we had variables like S&P 500 and MSCI Emerging Market that had high loadings. And on the other axis, the second factor, we had variable like 10 years U.S. Treasury yields and even a DXY that had high loading. So once again, we see, in fact, how important the global factors and the global variables are for the case of the Mexican peso. Then in the second stage, when we introduce these factors into our regression analysis, we find out at the time when we released this publication that the Mexican peso looked attractive to buy. Now, just a few days before having this discussion with you, we updated our model. And in fact, we saw that the Mexican peso seems to be brought in line with the global factors. The differentiation whether an investor will decide to buy the currency could come, in fact, from how strong are your views based on the domestic variables. And related to this point, for example, I think that Mexico peso is supported by the balance of payment position, as Claire mentioned early, which I think it will remain supported also thanks to the trade balance and the positive impact that the U.S. manufacturing sector has on the Mexican exports, in addition to remittances, which I think they will continue to remain strong due to the U.S. fiscal package, which, of course, is going to have a positive spillover also in the Mexican growth, as it will have also for Canada, for instance. And the second reason why I see the currency remaining strong versus the dollar is due to the monetary policy. I think that the Banco will maintain a tight monetary policy stance, this due to two main factors. The first one is we know that Banco is data dependent on inflation. 
So we currently have, have had data that points towards an inflation uh, above uh, even uh, the upper bond uh, limit of uh, the buying of at least 4%. And in addition, the inflation expectations are currently above the central bank forecasts. And in addition to this one, I think that Bahipa will have to take into account also the country risk premium that uh, has increased due to the policies that the president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador, has implemented, such as the energy bill or even the Bahipa bill. But of course, there are risks to this view, which is, for example, the election and the outcome that we will have. Uh, my best case will be that the president of Mexico will lose his qualified majority. And I see this as positive for containing the country risk and also for keeping the investor sentiments uh, strong. Otherwise, if we will have a different scenario, then this might impact negatively the business sentiments. And as a consequence, might lead to portfolio outflows, and this could weigh on the currency. Thank you so much for that. And for the last question, so having drilled down deep into one currency there, I'm going to take it back to sort of the, the 10,000 foot view for my last question which is, according to the latest survey numbers from the Bank for International Settlements, EM currencies went from accounting for 19% of global FX turnover in 2016 to 25% in 2019. In a $6.2 trillion per day overall market, that's a big change in both percentage terms and numbers terms. So what I wanted to put to both of you is, while the pandemic might have impacted these figures and being in 2019, the numbers are slightly stale now. But broadly speaking, do you see this kind of growth story that we've seen driving interest in EM currencies among your clients? Yes, you're right that we've seen increased interest over the last few years on emerging markets. And even since the beginning of the pandemic, we understand that investors continue to show interest, especially on hedging EM currencies, not only in the passive way, but also, for instance, uh, dynamic hedging, so active strategies on emerging market currencies. So initially, the interest on emerging markets currencies is driven by what you have in your portfolio. And over the last decade or so, we've had an increased share of emerging markets in global indices. And more recently, as you know, China has entered as well for debt and equity. China has entered the global investment indices. And that's really important because you understand that investors will need to hedge or manage their currency exposure when they buy Chinese debt, for instance. So more interest on emerging markets, which is consistent with the role of emerging markets in the global economy and their increased share in the international portfolios. But the pandemic has changed in March and April and, and the following months in 2020 is the liquidity. Because as you mentioned, those markets have generally deepened over the last few years on the currency side. The option markets are now quite deep and liquid, so there's been more interest. However, with the crisis in March, you've had dysfunctional markets, even in the US Treasury markets, as you remember in March. And for emerging market currencies, that also translated into a big um, reduction in liquidity. And my understanding is that that liquidity has not fully come back yet. So from time to time, you may have large volumes, but the spreads are quite wide still. So it's not as easy to trade is uh, the second conclusion. But the interest is still there because what the crisis has showed is that you can have big drawdowns on emerging market currencies in your own portfolio. And that pays to have hedges and to have an active strategy in order to have this shield in order to reap returns over the longer term. So that's definitely a crisis that creates opportunities in terms of valuation, both valuation fundamental side or from fair value implied by global factors. 
So you have a large set of opportunities, but you have also big risks in terms of near-term drawdowns. And we've seen that very recently with shocks on geopolitical side, on the virus front. And I think that will keep some interest on hedging or managing actively emerging market currencies uh, over the next few quarters. Thank you so much, Claire and Elisa, for joining me on the podcast today. I look forward to having you back about this time next year, when I'm sure the, the next report will hopefully be coming out on this subject. And to our listeners, please do join us again next time. Thank you for listening to the 360T podcast. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings. 